RDI Insights. Mike Dempsey in conversation with Royal Designers. Hello and welcome to the RDI Insights podcast series, where I will be interviewing major figures in the design industry who have been made RSA Royal Designers for Industry, the highest accolade for a designer in the UK. The award was introduced in 1936 to highlight and honour the work of industrial designers for their sustained creative excellence and benefit to society. Except during the nine months before he draws his first breath, no man manages his affairs as well as a tree does. That is a quotation from George Bernard Shaw and is close to the heart of my guest today. Charlie Payton has a love of trees and is guardian to a 32-acre ancient woodland where he spends a great deal of his time, more of which later. For the last three decades, Charlie has been constantly improving his revolutionary seawater greenhouse. It is designed for hot, dry coastal regions and uses a combination of sunlight and seawater for cooling and desalination providing the perfect growing conditions for various crops where agriculture would normally be impossible. With the increase of global warming affecting large swathes of the planet, these greenhouses are now being recognised as increasingly important. But long before that, Charlie Payton was at the forefront of lighting technology with his invention of the world's first motorised, independently moving spotlight, enabling a far greater dramatic effect in lighting for theatre, opera, dance and musical performance. An early form of Charlie's lighting was used to great reception at the final tour of The Who in 1982, and later added heightened dramatic effect to Andrew Lloyd Webber's roller-skating musical extravaganza, Starlight Express. Earlier still, when studying theatre design at Central School of Art, Charlie, for his graduation project, built and flew a replica of the Hawk created by the late 19th century flight pioneer Percy Pilcher, who was sadly killed on a test flight. Find out how Charlie fared shortly. During this period of increasingly large energy hikes, I was intrigued to discover that through his problem-solving ingenuity, Charlie has reduced his household energy bill by 80%. I'm sure we'd all like to achieve that right now. We hooked up remotely between London and Dorset, and I was intrigued to know more about the changes he has made to his home to transform its energy use. It was about 10 years ago we rebuilt, or didn't really rebuild, we extended our workshop. And I was very keen to test out an idea that I've been working on for some time, which is a, a rooftop greenhouse. And it seems to me that the rooftop is where the sun is, is where the energy is, but we don't make any use of it, very rarely, apart from people putting the old solar panel up there. And greenhouses in the UK tend to be quite energy intensive affairs because you need to heat them because it's too cold for most of the time. But if you convert your attic, your rooftop into a glass house, you get an awful lot of what I suppose people would consider unwanted heat. You know, you, there's a, a, ter a terrific volume of heat. So what I did was connect the greenhouse with a duct and a fan so that the 
the heat blew downstairs to the ground floor and then circulated through the building. And it's been phenomenal. It's been really successful. And for the first six years of operating this thing, I also used it as a greenhouse and grew tomatoes and strawberries and lettuce and all sorts of things. And it was really successful, but it, it, in the end, it just got too much hard work. Greenhouses, well, plants are very sort of demanding things. They're worse than children. Well, I, I've seen the photographs of you in that space, and it looks more like a lamp than a greenhouse to me. Yeah. So you obviously use it for your own studies, for growing, I, I guess, because that will come on to that later. But that's a rather important part of, of your whole philosophy. Uh, it's absolutely spot on. You know, I, I designed greenhouses, but I don't know much about growing. And so it was an opportunity to learn more about it and test out various ideas and have a, a complete sort of fully functional experimental workshop. Yeah. It, as part of the office and workshop. What I'm going to do now is I'm going to sit back to your childhood. You were born in 27th of June 1950, so that's just four years after World War II, when the country was still under austerity, not that you would have known that as a, as a baby. What sort of background did you come from? I suppose my parents were both very middle class. Before the war, my father had wanted to be an architect and he had trained to be an architect. And then the war happened, he was called up. He became an intelligence officer. And after the war, he couldn't, for various reasons, commercial, economic, I suppose, couldn't find a job as an architect because he hadn't fully qualified. And in those days, you had you needed quite a lot of money to be able to do that. So he, he went through a series of design-based jobs. And I think from a very early stage instilled in me sense of design and we were always going off to look at buildings and exhibitions and things he in a sense imbued in me this this passion for design and what things looked like and functionality and yeah I've got an older brother and an older sister what do they do my sister lives in Canada now she she's actually blind and I've always been very close to her and somehow I've sort of felt that my ability to see in some way made up for her inability to see, if, if that sounds a bit odd, but I was always very you know, keen to sort of, and still am actually, you know, describe visual things. And your mother? Pretty much all the time she was a housewife and stayed at home. We had a very middle-class sort of life in, in a town called Camberley, which is on the edge of Sandhurst, which is the sort of officer's place. And he, all the time actually, he, he worked in London in various different um, capacities. I just adored Meccano and played with it all the time. And from a very young age, I can't remember what it was, it was probably about four or something, I was given a, a tool set for my birthday and that was just super exciting. And I, I suppose I spent most of my childhood making things, taking things apart, mending things. I've, I've always just really enjoyed playing with tools and... Thinking back, because I'm, I'm a little older than you, I'm, I was 1944, so I was a you know, baby boomer, I guess. Uh, the war was still raging. But I remember so much about that period in the mid-50s where all these little building sets and various gadgets came on the scene long before construction kits, the plastic ones, I mean, you know, the aeroplanes and so forth. These were much more like miniaturised reality. Meccano was like a miniaturised proper building product, you know, made of metal and with screws and the whole thing. And also there was the building set with, with real bricks, but miniaturised. Do you remember those? Yes, I do. I had those. Did yes, you? Absolutely. And you could, you could combine the two and do all sorts of wonderful things. 
And I would guess, I guess, probably the Eagle comic, did that come into your life? I would say the Beano was my education. Oh, right. Okay. I guess more disruptive. It certainly was that. Now, I'm thinking about the more, the more constructional side of your liking. They had those exploded diagrams in the centre spread of the Eagle, which I always found fascinating. You know, the inside, a ship cut in two, a bit like Damien Hurst's uh, cow. But yes, I know. With a ship yeah. instead. This is a bit of fr- frivolity, but your cancer, that's your birth sign, isn't it? It, it is indeed. So I'm going to run through some of the negatives and positives and see whether they... Um, <laughs> positive traits are caring, loyalty, yep. Yep. Pr- protective, yep. in- intuitive, yep. creative, yep. family-orientated, yes. generous. I hope so. Okay, so then the negatives are moody, yes. s- sensitive... Too sensitive, yes. Yeah. Sometimes vindictive. Mm, try not to be, but probably, yes. Yeah. Suspicious. Yep. Insecure. Yes. Pessimistic. Yes, especially now. <laughs> okay, so going on to one last bit. Cancer zodiac signs are usually associated with the day Monday. That's your day of the week. And white and silver as your colours. And it's also associated with the moon. Guess what your element is? Could it be water? Exactly. So I put the moon because of the tidal effect that it has and water together. And that seemed to me to be something you are, you've been working with for several decades. Yes. And always influenced by, of course. But aren't we all? Yes. So what are your earliest recollections when you became sort of probably about, what would it be, five or six or seven, you'd be really beginning to understand what the hell was going on? I suppose being quite solitary. I mean, I was I was always playing by myself with toys and making things, uh, sort of focused and concentrating on that sort of stuff. I've never been very sporty. I've never been a good team player, I don't think, or interested in being part of a team. But it's always been making things, taking things apart, carpentry, pottery, woodwork metalwork mechanisms that are sort of that I found most interesting. Sounds like you didn't have many friends or you preferred to be in your own company. I think that's the case, yes. I mean we had a you know we we had a very a very strong family, so we had a very strong family unit and we did everything together. And I went to various different schools, but I a school I was not good at school and I think it was partly because I'm a bit dyslexic, which I think is quite common to many Absolutely. RDIs. During the course of these interviews, of which there are many now, the number of dyslexic individuals is astonishing. And I found, well, I found that also in, with friendships as well, particularly in our, our world, the sort of creative world. It's just, it really is quite amazing. Yeah, but as you know, it hadn't been invented in, in our day. No, we, we, we were called thick. Thick and stupid. And yeah. you, you know, you could try harder. And I, 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 I really struggle with this because, you know, I'm, I'm trying as hard as I can. <laughs> How does but it affect you? Oh, it doesn't affect me now. Um, no. I, I, have a, I, I mean, I still can't do my tables. I just can't do it. And people, I mean, it, it, my wife thinks I'm really stupid. Come on, you know, seven times seven, come on. And I just don't know, like, I can't do it. So I sort of reach for a calculator or something. But I, I think what it, what it taught me at school was sort of constantly being in trouble, being told off. Which is why I was so fond of the Beano, because it was sort of very good at being anti-authoritarian. Uh, rules, we don't think so, kind of approach. And so I was forever 
breaking them, I suppose, because it was something I could do. And I was, in a way, getting my own back at what seemed to me to be really unfair, unreasonable. But were there any subjects that you latched on to? There was only one, and that was pottery. And I went to a fairly posh boarding school because my parents thought that's what you ought to do in those days, which I absolutely hated. This is Branston. But surely you went somewhere else before Branston. I went to a place called Port Regis, which was a sort of like a junior school for Branston. Right, OK. Um, from a very early age, I was always very homesick and didn't like it, didn't enjoy it. So you were quite a distance from home. So you were, you were a weekend exeat. Yeah, it was. My parents would come down and take us out at weekends, but they could only sort of manage that sort of once a month. It sounds a bit sad to say so, but I, I almost forgot them at school. And when they came to take us out... The only way I could recognise them from all the other parents was from the car they drove, which is a bit sort of sad, I suppose. I remember it, it had a certain reputation in the school for creative subjects, did it not? Didn't Branston. Con- um, didn't Conran go there, or he sent his yes, kids there, I think? He, yes, he did. Yes, he did. And we had, you know, we had great facilities. One of the things we were allowed to do was choose our own subjects to a large extent. And at the end of the term, we had to have whatever subjects we'd chosen signed off by whoever that teacher was. And I became expert at forging signatures. And so I didn't go to any of these classes if I could possibly avoid it. Uh, And I spent all my time hiding in the pottery. And we had a fantastic pottery master called Don Potter. Oh, what a name. Yeah, he was he was <laughs> absolute genius and really inspirational. And he never actually said anything, but I think he knew exactly what was going on and he sort of let me get away with it, if you see what I mean. Right. And he did things like put me in charge of firing the kilns, which was often a, you know, a, like a three-day event. You know, Exciting, be, yeah. Be there day and night. And it's mm. fabu- just a fabulous thing. And learning about all that alchemy of glazes and firing clay was a terrific education. But I, I suppose the rest of the time I was, I was doing things like learning... French and mm. mathematics. I can't speak a word of French now. You know, my mathematics is useless. And so, you know, for people like me or people like us, I don't know, the, 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 the education that we had was just a waste of time. Yeah. I, only when I left school did I start learning things. Well, I agree with you there. I mean, I'm envious of people that had fantastic educations and they got three A's, four A's. I got one O level in art. Me too, me too, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so after Branson, did you take any time out or did you go straight on to Central? No, I, or did you do a foundation? Yeah, yeah I, got, I got thrown out of um, Branson. Oh. I had to, to go to art school, which is what I decided to do. I had to have two A-levels. So I then went to Guildford Technical College, got two A-levels, which was good fun in a funny kind of way. And it was much more normal, you know, technical college, I was with people that I got on with and yeah. chums, and it was, it was a sort of much more normal kind of environment. And I wasn't told off all the time. I was, you know, people treating me with much more respect. And then I went to Guildford Art School to do a foundation, which was absolutely fantastic. What was your subject, or were they...? Well, that was foundation. Oh, they give you a little bit of everything for another, Everything, yes. absolutely yeah. everything, yeah. which was terrific. Yeah. Absolutely everything. Lots of different materials, made lots of interesting people. Great workshop, great facilities. You could do anything, and it was really good fun. And that took me to Central School of Art. What area of design were you going to do there? I was very lucky. When I, when I got thrown out of school... I, I, I went up to London for a bit to find a job. I Could I just this. backtrack there? You said you got thrown out, and I meant to say, why did you get thrown out? I got thrown out because I was always being naughty. And I was told the next naughty thing I did, I'd be thrown out. And a friend and I were spotted coming out of a pub in Blanford Forum, and that was it. Oh, so uh, that kind of naughty, just... It was that kind of naughty, Disobeying yeah. the just, rigid... Exactly. Yeah. Okay. 
So I went to London and sort of did various jobs, which was good fun. And I just happened by chance to get a job as an electrician. I got a job as an electrician at the Festival Hall over Christmas for London Fest- working for London Festival Ballet, which was absolutely transformative because here's this thick, stupid, useless, never going to get a job, never going to have to worry about tax and things like that, to working in this magical environment with these beautiful girls in tutus and the orchestra playing Tchaikovsky, Swan Lake and Sleeping Beauty and all the magic of the theatre and all the rest of it. And I was part of it. And at the end of the week, the chief electrician came up and he said, oh, Charlie, that was well done. Here's your money. Oh. And, he, and he hands over an envelope. You know those envelopes with I holes do. in secret I do indeed, yes. And, and he said, could you come back next week? And this was, this was just absolutely extraordinary. You know? So whoever says your childhood are the best years of your life, absolute nonsense. It was, it was absolutely transformative getting my first job. My, mind you, I was lucky to have such a brilliant job, but that, that completely locked me into the whole business of lighting design. So this was a job prior to going to Central, yes? Uh, yes, it was, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's something I did in the holidays and in, right. yeah, um, and then went back back home to go to technical college and to art school. But whenever I could work, I did work. And doing theatre work was always brilliant in those days because you could you could go to college and then you could go and sort of work in the evening on a show, which wasn't really work at all. It was just part of the education. And, and you'd be paid money, you know, which was uh, made it all possible. Let's move on to Central then. How did you find that? I loved it. Actually, did you particularly yeah. uh, want to go to Central? Firstly, did you apply there specifically or was it one it, of many? It was the only place that did theatre design, apart from, I think, Wimbledon. And But if I went to Wimbledon, I would have had to stay at home yeah. because it was close and I didn't want to do that. I wanted to move out. I wanted to live in London. I wanted to work in London. Yeah. And, combine. and it had the best reputation. Ralph Coltai was the head of department at the uh-huh. time. Yes. He, was, he was a very inspirational character. Yes. Very critical as well, but he was. It was a brilliant education because you learn everything, you know. Yes. Making, making costumes and how to make hats and making scenery and, and because I was the only student who had some knowledge of lighting because I was working in it all the time. I always got to sort of do all the student projects, you know, whenever students were putting on shows or doing something, they'd always ask me to do the lighting or to help with it. And so lighting was not a course you could do in those days. It's something that electricians did. Absolutely, uh, and, and their unions to go with it. Uh, yeah, yeah, all of that stuff. So I found it absolutely fantastic. And it, it took me very much into the world of dance to a large extent. The uh, Ballet Rambert would use the theatre the Genetic Opera Theatre attached to the college two or three times a year. And so I'd always be in there sort of operating follow spot and just doing lights control. How interesting. Just, just, just fantastic. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful upbringing. Now, while you were at Central, tell us a little bit about this Percy Pilcher's Hawk flying machine project that you undertook. We had to do a major project, sort of third year, end of year degree project. And most people chose to do an opera or a play or something and take it as you know as far as they could. And I thought I would try and do a film about pioneering aviation. And and I went off and did I just thought the whole idea of people trying to fly was very romantic. That jumping off a hill into the wind and being able to take off. And so I but I went to the Science Museum, actually, where they had the original Percy Pilcher's Hawk, and they let me in to measure it, and I found all the drawings for it. It was It's the first plane, if you like, in the UK, it was 1896, and he flew this thing. So I thought it'd be great to make a replica of it and try and fly it. 
as a as a kind of romantic idea to go with a piece of music by Eric Satie. Oh yes, as it happens. But so that was the idea anyway. And uh, so for my degree show, I just sort of all the other students had their models and sets and things around the place, and I just hung my glider up in the auditorium. There are photographs of you actually, well, off the ground. Yeah. Did you make that at the, is that part of the end? I, I, I did. I I'd spent as much time trying to find someone to fly it as I spent trying to make it, because it wasn't easy finding, you know, the right kind of conditions. Uh, but I found this amazing spot in the South Downs, and I found a, a barn that a farmer let me use to store the thing in. And so a little group of us would go down at weekends and sort of play around with it and fly it. And I did actually... I, did, I wouldn't say I flew it exactly, but I did things like loop the loop accidentally and land upside down in a field of cows. And You seem to be about two metres off the ground in the shot yeah. that I've seen, and you're it just was... wearing a crash helmet with your legs dangling below, and I thought, wow, that's an easy way to break both legs. Exactly. I, sort of, I, I persevered with it as safely as I could for quite a while, but never got very far with to actually make a film. And we were recording it, not actually with a cine camera, but with stop frame animation kind of thing, motorised 35mm thing. And so uh, to complete the project, I thought, well, I'll, I'll make a model of it and hang it from a balloon and film that. Not a very exciting project in the end, but it was, it was very educational and taught me a lot about all sorts of things. Now, during your time at Central, you also did some odd jobs. Tell me about the special one at ITN. I, you know, I had become a member of NACI, and so every time I needed a job, I'd go along to the NACI office and say, have you got any jobs going? And they said, yes, we're looking for somebody over the summer. This was 1969, to work at ITN. So that involved moving scenery and putting out the makeup for the newscasters and dealing with images. Do you know, they didn't tell me at the time, but the reason they needed an extra studio assistant was because there was the Apollo 11 launch coming up. And I found myself in the right bang in the middle of this extraordinary earth-shattering event. During the Apollo 11 launch itself, all of us, all of the, all the cameramen and the newscasters and all the technicians, well, there weren't that many of us, we all had to stay for three days, three nights, in case something happened, because nobody knew what was going to happen. And we had this little tiny telly in the corner with, with a live feed coming in from NASA the whole time and then every now and again right we're going on air in five minutes you know do this do this and and I was sort of constantly scrabbling around the um, the studio sort of putting props together and sets and rearranging bits of moon rock and dust and and the model lander we had and we had you know a space uniform and all that sort of stuff so it was fantastically educational. When you then went on to complete your course at Central did you have any idea of where you would be going did you have a job set up already with all your connections or more or less yes i worked with a startup dance group called strider which richard alston founded and one of the things we did at central was quite a lot of sort of projects with dancers from the place which was up the road and in those days it was all very experimental we all you know the design students would work with dancers and musicians and, and we put together little shows and things and it was it was a fantastically interesting educational period when everything I don't know if you remember in those days everything was sort of being questioned you know theatres weren't they weren't sort of comfy plush red velvet things anymore they were black boxes sort of minimal and stripped down stuff and I think primarily because a whole new set of people came in that had a completely different view of what theatre was along with it you know, the way they looked, the way they acted, and, and the way they saw spaces. Yeah, exactly. Which are much more 
egalitarian it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't the royal opera house anymore exactly it was it it was more like events and i suppose it's become what 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 events are now looking back i suppose you'd call it a revolution but it was you know it was a big shift in thinking and performance yes um, and the arts in general absolutely i mean when you think for a moment of theater and you think of it wasn't really until the late 50s that in this country anyway, that things started to really dramatically change. It got away from all of those middle-class country manor sort of setups with people coming, going with uh, tennis rackets under their arms, you know, being very polite. And then you got suddenly, you know, the kitchen sink dramas popping up and a bit of reality to shock everyone. When you left Central, in 1974, you, f- you became the founder and director of Small Works. What, what was Small Works? That's right. There was, a, there was a group of us, two other chums from Central, we set up, we, we all got on well together and we, well, let's, let's set up a, a business making props and doing effects and special effects and that kind of thing and uh, it worked really well actually for quite a long time we made all sorts of weird wonderful things usually on a budget of nothing or next to nothing and one of the things that took me into which was interesting was building sets for adverts which was hugely profitable and very often there was sort of tremendous scope for doing really imaginative things and big budgets to do it with invariably the product was always really dull and boring it was we were trying to make something that wouldn't sell unless you had a really a really jazzy advert so so some of the most exciting things were sort of like doing a toothpaste advert, or just really mundane stuff. But you know, we could we could sort of create this tube that flew through the sky and sort of had light beaming out of it and swiveled and was a kind of spaceship sort of thing, which all made it very exciting. It, and what it what it actually did was make that particular I think it was ultra bright toothpaste cost sort of 10, 15 percent more than the non ultra bright toothpaste. And, and yes. After a while, I thought this actually. This isn't really a very good thing to be doing. Well, this is at a time, of course, you're talking about now the mid-70s. Yes. When people like Alan Parker, Ridley Scott, Hugh Hudson were surfacing from the world of advertising. Exactly, exactly. They got their own commercials under their belt and they were looking for bigger things. Exactly. Uh, But it certainly changed the look of cinema through, through commercials. And then after that, of course, you went on to form Lightworks. None of these things ever started or finished, they overlap. And I'd do bits and bobs of this, that and the other. But one of the things that set me off on the Lightworks business was touring. A very good chum of mine, Peter Straker, who's a singer, he came to Central and he sort of did projects with students and every student would choose a song and kind of design a set for it. And then he asked me to go on tour with him. He was doing a tour around the country. And one of the things I kept thinking about on this tour you're doing one night stands and um, trying to do as much magic as you could I just I came up with this idea of having a motorized lighting system of beam lights that that fanned out and fanned in and I put up I made it I made a sort of system at using bicycle cables brake cables and springs and you know so you'd have one motor pulling 20 lights so they would all tilt and and fan and pan and sort of thing and I got it to a sort of pre-production stage it ended up featuring on the farewell tour of the who and I used it in lots of different 
musicals and shows and things that I was working on. Did this come about through noting in those years when you were working with dancers and lighting, which was then very much a, a physical thing? If you wanted to spot to move, you had to have someone move it physically. The only thing you could do with lighting was dim it and brighten it and diffuse it, but very little dynamic movement. Were you noting that as you went on? Did you sort of think, if only those move? I was quite a skilled follow spot operator. I did, I did follow spot operating for quite a lot of different people, most notably Shirley Bass and learnt all these sort of magic tricks that follow spots would do, could do, and how awful it was when they went wrong, you know, the timing and all of that sort of stuff. But the other thing is when you do theatre lighting, in, in most theatres you've got this raped stage and on above it you've got all these bars with lights dangling down and somebody has to go up on a, a thing called a toloscope which is a ladder on wheels, and get pushed backwards and forwards, pointing the lights in the right direction, putting the colour in and focusing, all that sort of stuff. Well, I fell out of telescope three times. God. Or at least they, they tipped. Once I ended up in the stalls, once I was left hanging on to a bar, and another time sort of they managed to sort of tip it and then flip it back up again. Is that because of the rake of the stage, you said? It's because of the rake of the stage, yeah. yes. You'd have to adjust the telescope, the, the rake, and then you need to get to a light that means you've got to twist the telescope so it's leading over a little bit. Right. We used to take ridiculous risks in those days, stuff that you couldn't get away with now. But it struck me as being sort of fairly mad yeah. uh, that you, you can't sort of do this stuff by remote control. And if you can do it by remote control, then you don't need so many lights. So that the light scan idea proved to be too difficult to put into production or to turn into a, a product. And instead, I started working on individual motorized lights, light, uh, putting motors on every single light and starting off doing some television studio lighting which was quite a challenge you know big big five kilowatt multi-purpose things yeah it's very hot really hot really hot um but learning you know sticking motors and computers on things that get that hot presents lots of challenges so i learned a lot about light and heat and how to overcome those kind of problems and then we had this wonderful job coming along which was starlight express which david hersey was the lighting designer for it and Starlight Express was a musical. Yes, um, on roller skates. Everybody was on roller skates, so why not put the lights on roller skates as well, because everybody's moving so fast. This had, this hadn't been done before. Uh, it's now very ubiquitous, and sort of every programme on television and theatre has motorised lights, but this was very novel in those days, and so it was really a, a big project that enabled us to sort of put this whole R&D idea together, and it was fantastic. It was really good fun, really interesting, and... Um, you must have thought that this is going to be big because, I mean, it's it's pretty revolutionary to suddenly have a system whereby you can control lighting with fewer people for a start. Yeah. Do you know, it took a long time to catch on. It was a fairly niche market. It was only one other competitor, if you like, in those days, and that was a company called Verilight, who did sort of rock and roll yeah. stuff, which was yeah. rather more... But these things, I mean, each light cost more than a car. You know, My goodness! It was, yeah. it was an ex, you know it was an expensive operation, and we were sort of battling with cost and, and performance and all of these sort of things. But it took ten years to sort of actually become a reality. You had a small factory, didn't you, where these things yes. were made? Yeah, I had them. Uh, there was a just I mean I'm in Hackney and across 
across London Fields, the other side of the park from me, there was a, a workshop for disabled people, which was fantastically well equipped. It was very well put together. It was a sort of an enterprise from London Borough Hackney. And there were these wonderful skilled people there who could do metalwork and soldering and put mechanisms together. And uh, we used we used them to do all the um, all the production. And it was it was utterly brilliant. It worked really well. We were not in a position to sort of set up a factory. But the local authority had the but facility. The, the facility was there, yeah. And all around where I live in Hackney, there were so many different little workshops, people turning out gears and spinning metal and yes. bending it and folding it and welding it. and All those funny little under the arches yeah, properties yeah. all over the country are, exactly. are, are still are still working, some of them. Still, but very few of them. Most of them are being converted into nail bars now and yeah. coffee shops. Well, I remember after I started CDT, we had a studio in um, Brownlow Mews, which is around the corner from ITN, the, the newer building, not the one yeah. you, you were in. But when we first arrived, it was all little light industrial properties. And then within two years, the rates went up massive and they all had to go out of business. Yeah. It, there was some interesting work that I noted that I really liked. And, and this was some recreations of some James Terrell light pieces that you produce. Yes. And you went on to do quite a number of them, didn't you? Yeah. James Terrell is an amazing artist in, in light. Mm. But when he was a fairly young hippie in, I think, 1969-ish, he got himself a Zen and Art cinema film projector and he put it in a studio and he blacked out all the windows and he, he experimented with this very intense light and different lenses by, instead of using film, putting in strips of metal in the gate. And so he would make very simple shapes, a rectangle, a triangle, a square, a box. And when you project, let's say, a triangle with very high intensity into the corner of a white room, you can see that triangle floating in midair. It's sort of you, it, it's kind it, of three dimensional, isn't it? Like, it, it becomes three dimensional, and when you walk round it, you can you can actually see round it. it it's yeah. quite it's very difficult to describe, but it's quite a magical effect. And these were things that he made, and he would then do a, a, a drawing of them and take a photograph of it, and then. They were sort of largely forgotten about. And a gallery, Anthony Doffey Gallery, they wanted to put on one of these pieces long after he had sort of finished doing it. So at the time he had people working for him who was sort of scouting around, where can we get a really bright light that can project? And at that time I was doing some very high intensity uh, projectors. Was this with the carousel projectors? Exactly, you, you, the carousel, yeah. You adapted the lenses, didn't you? I took the light bulb out and put in a, one that was a daylight colour and a much high intensity. Yeah. And this was sort of sticking a box on the side of it because in those days a lot of shows a lot of audiovisual shows were banks of carousel projectors all clicking away yes making making multiple images which of course nobody nobody sees anymore but it was in in, in exhibition world it was quite a big number i'm kind of fond of them and hate them at the same time but the the downside of those carousel projectors you get one that jams and everything's screwed up there was a lot to go wrong (laughs) yes for sure and they took a lot of sort of nursing and you, you might have a bank of sort of 30 of them you know, for one backdrop. Yeah. And, and of course, one goes wrong. And then, then what do you do? It's really uh, terrible, terrible, terrible. Now, this company that was going along and suddenly became successful, you got to a point where I think you sold the company, went on to do what you'd been dreaming of for quite some time, even sort of work in certain respects, and that was the seawater greenhouse. Yes, it was It was fortunate. It was. I was sort of coming to the end. I was not interested in setting up a business motorizing lighting it was just it was a challenge that I enjoyed doing but when the business became a business I didn't enjoy that very much and I thought 
let's sell it to the biggest player in the game, which was Strand Lighting. And uh, because most of the interest at that time was coming from sort of opera houses and big, you know, which is the sort of stuff they did. So I sold it to Strand Lighting and got a shed load of cash in return. And it was at that time I had been thinking about the Seawood Greenhouse, about the this whole idea of light and heat and why are plants green and what do you do with the heat and how do you get rid of the heat. And I spent a lot of time in Morocco. I used to go there for holidays with my wife regularly. And I just kept puzzling over this, you know, yep, Morocco is this is where the sort of the Sahara, the yellow Sahara meets the blue of the Atlantic. And there was an almost perpetual drought. And I thought, well, surely there must be some way of growing plants and distilling seawater to enable them to grow because you, you have the ingredients there. It's just it's it's a, it's a question of playing with the light. So I learned this extraordinary thing from being a subscriber to lighting equipment news and an article by Phillips about photosynthesis. And I learned that plants use red light and blue light, but they don't use infrared light. And so one of the reasons things don't grow well in Morocco or hot sunny places is because it's too hot. So I thought, well, if we can take the heat out of the light, which I I knew a little bit about, then the plants will be happier and we can take that heat and use it for something else like distilling seawater. So that was that was the basic idea, which of course to most people was completely stupid. Seawater, greenhouse, you know, mm. greenhouses in the desert, hot place, it's a hot house. What do you want a hot house in a and it wasn't a hot house, it was a cool house. So we used seawater for cooling and humidifying and uh, basically uh, climate control and so I, that's what I've been persevering with ever since as it happens. Can you just describe for listeners the, the basic principle? You've got one end of the greenhouse which has a sort of what looks like a corrugated almost like honeycomb exactly. affair. That exactly. water. Explain what happens there it's about it's about the evaporation isn't it? Exactly it's 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 a, it's a sort of honeycomb of corrugated cardboard and it's fluted and there are there are blocks that are 100 mil thick and so we build the entire wall of the greenhouse that faces the prevailing wind out of this material and trickle seawater down it and as the air blows through water evaporates which cools the air and makes it more humid mm -hmm. but the salt doesn't evaporate most people think well what happens to the salt well the salt gradually becomes more and more concentrated until you've got concentrated brine and then you can turn it into salt and you do that don't you you and actually Yes. scoop it off and you we actually, we package do, yeah. it yeah we do and all of that cooling that protection from the wind a little bit of shade and a little bit of shelter reduces the amount of water that plants need by maybe tenfold maybe a hundredfold depending on the conditions which means that it's it's perfectly possible to grow crops in some well the hottest sunniest regions of the world now whether that's a good thing to do or not is debatable because there is a cost to it what i find is that introducing horticulture to places that traditionally don't have horticulture is a challenge you know most of the most of the knowledge of greenhouse cultivation, how to grow plants in controlled environments, is in, well, the Netherlands, in England, in Germany, France, in sort of northern climates. And you don't find you don't find any evidence of research and development and testing greenhouses in the Middle East, North Africa, with the exception of Israel. And so I've sort of kept a beady eye on all the work that comes out of research institutes in Israel and try to incorporate things as time goes by. But so yes, it, it's it's a process that has evolved from various stages actually. On, on the one hand, it's you, you can talk about controlled environment. You're actually controlling the environment, uh, every aspect of it. Or you can also talk about it's a protected environment. You're not you're not controlling it exactly. You're just protecting plants from the extremes of high temperature, too much sunlight, too mm. much wind. And then there's different levels of cost associated with each approach. Protected environment, protected climate is much cheaper 
and simpler to do than controlled environment. but it's it's kind of horses for courses. if you if you have a controlled environment you need very skilled people to to operate it with a very good knowledge of of horticulture with a protected environment then it's something that more traditional farmers can understand and make use of. i wanted to go back a moment because when you were establishing this new idea you ran into some difficulties with you were given a pot of money and then later you ran into some legal problems yeah someone trying to prevent you from doing something that was clearly going to be beneficial what tell me that story well i had a small pot of money but it wasn't enough to do a project to get something set up and running so i i spent a couple of years looking for teams and people who could help and i was traveling around europe and looking for a site to do it and one reason or another settled on uh, tenerife the canary Islands, which is part of europe and we put an application in for a grant from the european commission it was about a million euros in total and it was approved it was awarded this is under one of the early frameworks for research and development it was sort of given top marks as a as a a research and development project so what i didn't know was that the, the management the administration of this was handed to dg6 which is the agricultural directorate who unbeknown to me threw up their hands in horror and said no this this can't be allowed to happen which might seem a bit odd but nobody told us this uh, because they were obliged to sort of to, to manage the project and it was only in years two and three when they refused to pay us and they started causing difficulties and making us jump through hoops and all sorts of things that we realized that something was wrong and i only discovered afterwards i, th- I thought the, the european commission had just been difficult you know they're just really awful bureaucratic organization it turned out they were deliberately set out to make the project fail because they reasoned that if you enable people in morocco or eritrea or north africa to compete with the spanish and the french and the dutch in the world of horticulture then this is exactly what the European Commission should not be funding. Oh my goodness. Yeah, this was big time. And it That's went, dreadful. Yeah, it was really awful. But I didn't know this until it, until it, I just thought that they'd just been difficult and I had to sort of get my MEP involved and, uh, you know, it went right to the top of the Commission at, at, at one stage and, and even that was sort of a, a challenging and difficult. But And I had a, a large city law firm who were working pro bono to help me sort this out but it was a it was a legal battle that went on for six years yes i read that six years and yes. uh, but in the you you were the you later you won the design museum's first design sense competition for yeah. best practice in sustainable design exactly so and you came out that, trumps in the end well that put me back on course back on track but i mean you can imagine that you know when you've got a new product and you're trying to interest people and it sort of and it, and it happens that you're having a legal dispute with the european commission it's not sort of not good timing especially when they haven't paid and you're in debt and all of those no. terrible things but yes no the the design sense museum was fantastic and that put us back on track and generated interest from around the place and got the thing back up to speed again so where have you got these sited now, the, the seawater greenhouses? You have them one in uh, Australia, I think, don't you? Yeah, Australia's the biggest. It's been a succession of developments, I suppose, starting in Abu Dhabi, then working in Oman with the Sultan Qaboos University. That led to this project in southern Australia. We thought, what's the hottest, sunniest part of Australia that is by the coast? And it turns out to be this place called Port Augusta, which is on the edge of the outback. And so at that time, we had, a, we had an investor who was interested in 
taking it forwards. And we found the plot of land and we, again, everybody thought this was complete madness, but we built, this was around 2010. We built a pilot, tested it and had various problems, but you know, they were all overcome gradually, gradually. And the thing has become so successful that it's now expanded a hundred fold and it's producing something like 17,000 tons of tomatoes a year, which is... Um, so you mean they built further greenhouses yes, in the same exactly. location? Now, exactly. It's now, wow, it's, that must it's, be quite, it's, quite something for you to see that. Yeah, it's it's a hundred times bigger than what we first constructed. And the whole thing runs entirely from sunlight and seawater. It produces fantastic crops. It's, 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 a, it's been a really good success story. So how are you developing that now? What What is the next stage? That project generated quite a lot of interest from around the world. And in particular, we had a lot of inquiries from the Somali, Somaliland diaspora. Would that work in, in the Horn of Africa? And my first answer would be, well, no, it's too expensive. It's too complex. It's difficult and it requires a whole load of skills. Obviously, I'm going to be there. But bit by bit... I, with my colleagues, we sort of brainstormed, how, how can we make it simple? What, what is the simplest solution we can come up with that is, that is rugged, low cost, and will deliver? And so we spent, we got another grant from um, Innovate UK to do this, and we spent a lot of time at Aston University doing computational fluid dynamics and modelling wind and turbulence to see, could we make something where the cooling and the evaporation and the ventilation was driven directly by the wind without using wind power or anything, just as a wind catcher. And on the face of it, the answer would appear to be no, but the f more we looked into it, and the more we played with the design and the geometry of the thing, it, it turned out that the answer is yes, actually. There's, there's always wind if you're by the coast. It might not always come from the direction you want it to, but most of the time it does. And there's enough information out there to be able to predict how much of the time it will come from a given direction and how much time it won't. So you can then you can then design it to suit those conditions, which is what we did, and that's what I've been working on ever since. But it's not a greenhouse; it's it's a it's a shade it's a shade tent it's a shade structure, and it's no more complicated than a Bedouin tent where you've got wooden poles and steel cables, and it's just. A tent structure. What is the intention with that? Have it proved to be successful to multiply these so-called tents or make them larger? It, or One of the things it does is it creates, it, it evaporates a lot of water. It's a lot of cooling, which also creates a lot of high humidity. And this spills out because it's wind driven. This creates a sort of a, a local oasis effect of ah. cooler, more humid air. So then the thinking is, well, how much agriculture can we do outside the thing, in contrast to inside it? Because the more you can do outside, the, the lower cost the whole thing is. So we've got a, we're currently working on a ratio about five to one, the, an area of five times outside of sort of humidified and cooled air that is produced by the greenhouse itself, which is all about siting. How do you, it's a little bit like a farmer putting, putting a hedge, I need a hedge to protect this field from wind. It's, so, so we think of it as a kind of hedge. What area can you protect with this hedge? How hard does it have to be and how many how many hedges do you need? So we've got a ratio about currently five to one, five times the area outside to one area of, of shade tent, which is becoming the model that we're now trying to replicate in other parts of the world. And were you not also considering creating sort of forests? One of the one of the ways of making it go further is to take areas that have suffered from desertification that mm. were formerly forested mm -hmm. and that includes the site where we're working now in Somaliland in a hundred years ago the entire region was wooded with trees and palms and vegetation and it's a story of so many places that you know as the as the population grows especially populations of pastoralists with goats and sheep and 
camels. As those populations grow, rainfall doesn't increase, so gradually you get this desertification, this removal of vegetation, which in turn reduces rainfall because you're breaking the water cycle. So, uh, you know, desertifications happened at scale across most hot places, certainly the Middle East, most of North Africa, the Horn of Africa, Yemen, California even, you know. When you take water out of the ground and you're, you're not putting it at a rate that's fast and it comes in, you, you gradually build up a problem. So in today's world, the sort of apart from Ukraine, the, the number one story is climate change. And, and carbon dioxide cannot be captured by photosynthesis without water. So I, I'm, I'm arguing that in order to solve the carbon cycle, we need to solve the water cycle, because if you've got, if you've got sufficient water, then you can, you can mop up as much carbon as you want to. 40% of the world land surface is degraded in some form or another. A lot of it is desert. So there's a great deal of potential for restoring agriculture, forestry, but in the, the best method of all that I found is, is with this approach called forest gardening, where you, you have a great biodiversity of plants, some of which, which are useful directly, that you can, you can build things out of the products. You can make charcoal, you can, uh, the, the, the plant feeds the soil, it restores the carbon and all these sort of great complex things. And at the same time, make an economic living by sort of growing fairly intensive tomatoes and cucumbers and lettuces. And so the, the, the focus now is, is where will it be of most benefit, do most good? We have a world that has sort of come round to solving this drought problem. We've had awful examples of drought in the past and drought leads to famine. But we, we have a, a huge industry now which more or less, not very successfully, but more or less prevents that famine from happening through the World Food Programme and Food mm. Aid and Oxfam and all these sort of agencies but it's now a colossal industry and it's a f in terms of productivity it is extremely inefficient because these fragile areas tend to be insecure they're food insecure because they're water insecure and that tends to lead to security insecure you know there's a lot of conflict in places that suffer from drought so it makes it very expensive distributing food if not impossible and yeah. I, we're now we're reading all the time that because of the because of the disruption to the harvest in russia and ukraine you know this this summer we're going to have a, a crisis across the world because not only is the cost of food going up, it's just not going to be there. This is, obviously, this would put far more interest in what you're doing. I mean, suddenly, it, people are beginning to think, why are we having to get all this food from halfway around the world? Because it's a fraction cheaper. We, I think we're going through, at the moment, an, an incredibly dramatic period for everyone. I think, you know, we've had the pandemic. It's still kind of in there. But now we've got this whole new thing to deal with, where everything's going up. Heating is shooting through the roof. You must find that fascinating yourself because you're you've been dealing in if you like the opposite end of the scale you're trying to do things that will be benefit the planet rather than destroy it yes mike but i have to say without much success i find it to, to me it's so sort of blindingly obvious that you know we need to grow more food in places which suffer from drought which have easy access to flat coastal plains where agriculture once was once practiced like yemen like Horn of africa we're not going to run out of seawater it doesn't matter how much we use because we have a water cycle and it comes back as rain which is a good thing because if you do it in the right place you're going to, to put rainfall back but this is rather grand thinking and it's long-term stuff you know it's that we're not gonna be able to make a dent in a year or two to solve this current crisis but in five or ten then i think we can make a serious dent
Just staying with forests at the moment, I know this is a particular passion of yours because you've got a 32-acre forest in Sussex that you've been working with, observing and, and working in. Tell me about that. That's obviously very special to you because you've had it for such a long time. We bought the wood about 30 years ago when my kids were little. I, most of my chums thought I was completely nuts. You know, what are you going to do with 30 acres of wood? And of course, at the time, I knew next to nothing about it. I had a lot of help and advice in those days, but now I sort of picked it up and I've learned and read and studied and um, I can I can do pretty much all of it myself now. It is, it's, I can take such fun. You know, some people go to the gym and I think, why would you go to the gym when you can go and chop logs and split logs and <laughs> haul things about the place? But I find it really interesting, really good fun and incredibly rewarding because I do a bit of planting, not very much. It's, it's, a, it's a mature ancient wood and there's all sorts of fantastic, interesting things in it and it is quite, mesmerizing actually to to watch it and watch it every, every day is different every week is different every year is different things come and go and grow and decline and rot away and it's just endlessly fascinating i just love it a bit and, and it, it works brilliantly i love it you can have those weekends where people can do forest bathing can't you shinrin yoku exactly yes, we, exactly. exactly yeah we, we which is that. supposed to be very good for your mental state I, I haven't done it myself but i i've often looked up in a forest when you just see that lovely mass of trees above you it's got an atmosphere that's i think very beautiful so i can well imagine that being very popular well, there you are. You've done it. That's all you have to do. I mean, one, one of the rules of Shimon Yoku, if you do it properly, is to take time, not be in a hurry. And you can be with other people, but you can talk a bit, but it's better just to look and go and poke around and absorb it all. And that's what we tend to do. It's very, very magical. What's your view at the moment of our world of design, really, and what designers today should be doing that they're not doing within the faculty? It's a cross-disciplinary world, and I get frustrated by Many things that I would that I see in my area of business was a graphic design. I, I enjoy going to the supermarket and I go to all of them from the cheapest to the most expensive because I find it fascinating. But I see so much bad design or calculated design aimed at children, which I find really obscene. You're absolutely right. It's absolutely disgusting. And what's some statistic? More people are killed by sugar than military warfare and this goes all the way through the food system and the fizzy drinks and getting absolutely getting children addicted to sugar and the cost to society and to the national health and it's just extraordinary but this has all happened in in my lifetime and yet the way i was brought up my packaging was almost unheard of we always kept the wrappers and the bags and well that was a hangover from the war wasn't it exactly, exactly. make make do amend I, I my family were the same everything every scrap was saved yeah we collected the the, the lids off the milk bottles yeah we had enough and then you could go and get some money for them we are a consumer society on a huge scale and maybe this period that we're all going to go through will actually teach us you know what we don't need all this stuff the sad thing mike is that a lot of it comes from designers because uh, ev everything that there is is designed is designed by somebody you, you think good and right. these people have a conscience and we spend all this money advertising stuff to people who can't afford it who don't need it to press friends who we've created this sort of this race to the bottom in a way it's been amplified since large companies like amazon because they pushed everyone aside all the independent bookshops and so forth and they can undercut most people and their customer service is 
astonishingly good. Yeah. They've got that dead right. But um, it just means more people can have more stuff now and quicker and cheaper. What, what advice would you give to a young designer? Well, I can't say to follow your career because you've had such a diverse career. What I think it comes down to is creative thinking, because it seems to me that you've been fascinated through your life. There's a thread of things that actually have directed you to what you're doing. And certainly, you know, the way you described the dance, the movement, you know, that follows on from the idea of lights moving gracefully, being choreographed rather than having a very tight, rather stilted version of lighting, which it used to be. And then I can see that, you know, moving into into what you've been doing with the seawater greenhouses as well. I don't know how you would, what advice you would give, but give it a try. I would always try and help him with various things. And his, his, his line to me was, trust me, Dad, you're wrong. And so I'd, I'd find it very difficult to give advice to young people. But you're absolutely spot on that creative thinking is something that is not taught or encouraged. And it's absolutely fundamental to everything. And in, in my experience, it, it, it's only allowed, it's only taught and encouraged at art schools. Whereas most of education nowadays is about passing exams and not questioning. So I, I think creative thinking is the most important thing, followed by making mistakes. You've got to set yourself up and be prepared to fail because if you're not prepared to fail, you never learn anything. So you have to test any idea you have. Is You need to follow through and test it, even if people say, that's a rubbish idea, that will never work because I, I, that's absolutely... It's how you gain experience and knowledge. That's very good advice in itself. So the last thing I want to ask you is you, you've recently had some very interesting news which you can share part of with us and that's the X Prize. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? The X Prize is Elon Musk's funded $100 million competition for carbon removal. And uh, we submitted an application for it and we have been put on the shortlist of the top 60 applicants, which means we're now in the running for the top prize, which will be announced in three years' time. And the top prize goes to whatever scheme can draw down carbon at least cost at greater scale and my argument is that certainly plants can do it better than any human can there's lots of there's lots of engineering solutions for, the, for sucking carbon out of the air with vacuum cleaners and compressing it and burying it underground but trees and plants uh, and the soil does it best if it's done properly and done well in and that's we don't have to do much there it's sort of it's it's not new technology it is it is re-embracing what was traditional farming once upon mm. a time in, to, to a large extent but with the knowledge that we have now and there's no shortage of places where it can be done and there's no shortage of seawater to do it with and there's no shortage of hungry mouths to feed so i'm thinking that i'm hoping that you know if we if we manage to scale the thing up and demonstrate this then it'll It'll become a catering solution for so many uh, water-deprived, uh, food-insecure, hot, arid, desertified regions. Well, I, I, I really wish you well on that. I hope it does come to fruition. Let's, let's fingers crossed. Charlie Payton, thank you for sharing your RDI insights. It was terrific. Thank you. Very good. Thank you, Mike.